So um, our reading this morning is from Paul's first uh, letter to the Corinthian church, um, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. This is the last in uh, the series on 12 steps of discipleship. And as you may remember, each sermon was entitled Choosing. Because choosing to follow Christ is what discipleship is all about. So today, the title of the sermon is Choosing Love. Um, At staff meeting, we always have on Wednesday a refresh of the week. We think about the week to come and what we're planning. And at the top of the agenda, there's this recurring statement. And it is sights and sounds. So what we do is we share what we saw and what we heard in the previous Sunday, right? We assess the Sunday and we ask, how did things go? What did we hear? What did we see? And this Wednesday, a member of staff said that their son came home and said, well, today we got angry Bob. (laughs) Now, there's something incongruous about that because... The topic was hope. I, how do I do that? I don't know. But then he went on to say, he said, there's really two kinds of Bobs. He said, there's an angry Bob and a serious Bob. And he said, angry Bob is the best. So, um, 
I guess today I'll be serious, Bob. It doesn't seem like I can be angry, Bob, when I talk about love. So I'm going to whisper the entire sermon. Um, The idea of love is obviously a popular theme. It's popular and it's ambiguous. It has so many meanings, so many different meanings to different people. Uh, For those of you who like to follow the Beatles, if you're a fan of the Beatles, you'll know one of their most popular lyrics is, love is all you need, all you need is love. That was in the 60s, and um, it's a beautiful song in its own right, but it says almost nothing. (laughs) Really, take a look at the lyrics. (laughs) It says almost nothing, just love is all you need. What you definitely don't get in those lyrics is a definition of what love is, right? Now, I guess we should expect that. Uh, coming out of the 60s um, because we knew what we were against back then, but don't ask us to define what we were for, right? That's just kind of the way we were in the 1960s. But it's still true today. We, we routinely talk about love and we talk about it as an emotion and we don't really define it at all. It's just there. It's an ethereal idea. In the passage we read today, it's quite the opposite. Paul gives lots of definitions of love. And he provides a definition that emerges out of community. It it isn't just something he wanted to create, like beautiful poetry, which it is. He, He said, I want to talk about love because you need to hear about it. And the reason you need to hear about it is because there's all kinds of conflict among you people. You're fighting with each other. I've got a lot of things to address, but the top one I want you to remember is love. And here's what it is. So the context of this in in 1 Corinthians is Paul's addressing a group of highly intelligent, from what we can tell, and very emotional Christians. People that are both in tune with their emotions and in tune with the intellect. And they're always aspiring for some high form of knowledge or wisdom. That seems to be the characteristic of the Corinthian church. Tongues is there. Prophecy is there. The list goes on. All these lists of the gifts of the Spirit are present in 1 Corinthians. They're also in an affluent and a sophisticated culture in Corinth, where wisdom is sought. I mean, the church wasn't out of touch with this one. Everybody around them was seeking wisdom as well. You may have many problems, says Paul, but you're very gifted. And I want to thank God for that. But you need to hear this message about love. So the first part of this passage, I want to break down this way. The importance of love. The way Paul describes the importance of love is he does it by contrast. 
So he says, concerning love, even if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, even if I have a high-sounding phrase, even if I'm eloquent, even if I understand things that are way out there, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and don't have love, I'm like a gonging, clanging metal object. That's what I'm like. Now, of course, Paul was not talking about the symphonic beauty of a cymbal at just the right time. He was talking about somebody who just beat a metal object. And as a matter of fact, the Corinthians might have thought concerning their own experience that Paul was talking about a form of pagan worship in Dionysus, which was a form of pagan worship where you let all your emotions out and you elevated your sexual experience actually in public with other people in order to reach the divine. And part of that was this big gong, whoa, like that, <laughs> that they banged. They would go down the street banging the gong. They'd be in the temple banging the gong. And Paul basically says, you know that obnoxious noise. That's not harmonious. That's what prophecy is and tongues are without love. He goes on to suggest that prophecy, which is most easily associated with preaching, uh, that prophecy is useless without love. Uh, My preaching is useless without love, says Paul. There's so many things to talk about in the Scripture, right? And sometimes preachers, like myself, angry Bob, talk about judgment and God's wrath. And there is such a thing, judgment and God's wrath. But if the preaching of the Word of God is not overshadowed and informed by love, then the truth is a blunt object. Some of you may know this, but um, no doubt the most famous preacher of all times as an evangelist is Billy Graham. Not just in the 20th century, but if you, if you look at the number of people that Billy Graham spoke to and shared Christ with in the course of human history, there's nothing that compares with it in terms of numbers, nothing. Including John Wesley, George Whitfield, all the rest. Billy Graham spoke to more people about Jesus Christ than any other human being. Now, if you were to look at old black and white footage of Billy Graham and his sermons, and they're still out there, you would have seen a fiery, angry Billy who was constantly talking about wrath and God's judgment. There was a point at which, I don't remember, but I read his autobiography, a point at which Billy Graham changed. And he said, it occurred to me that not only is God wrath and judgment, but I need to speak about God's love. Now you might say, Billy Graham, the ultimate salesman, knew that if he spoke about love, it would be more wooing, it would draw more people in. That could be a cynical approach. 
I know enough about Billy Graham to know that he didn't drop the judgment and the wrath of God because he believed in it. But he spoke about love. Because truth without love, it's nothing. If I have the gift of knowledge, says Paul, and understand all mysteries, and I don't have love, that too is useless. You know, what's, uh, what's true of intellectual knowledge or, or what you might call wisdom, if you choose to use that term? It can be a form of snobbery because you know more than the other person. Constantly trying to be the smartest person in the room, even if you're not. It could be cold and an analytic spirit of contempt for those who don't understand. Paul basically says that, that's, that's the sum total of knowledge without love. It's worthless. He also says, if I have faith so that I can move mountains and I don't have love, that's worthless too. Now, that, that's really a dangerous phrase to use for Paul, Paul because he's virtually quoting the words of Jesus himself, a faith that moves mountains, a faith that Jesus suggested we ought to have. And Paul says, even though he doesn't use this word, even though Jesus said a faith that moved mountains is amazing, that faith without love is worthless. I'm glad he said it, not me, because I wouldn't want the wrath of Jesus. Paul didn't see it that way. He said miracle working faith is useless without love, and Jesus would have agreed. Charitable giving. He says, if I give everything, now listen, that's not just giving away certain things and helping somebody else. The description he gives here is if I give away everything, if I give all my goods to feed the poor, and in other translations, if I give my body up to be burned, if I'm a martyr, even if I do that and I don't have love, it counts for nothing. Uh, we, we don't think of martyrdom so much anymore, but it was a part of their life. We certainly don't think of burning ourselves as a martyr, but it's been a part of some people's life. But you know what we might have a problem with? Our own form of martyrdom. We might have a problem with understanding ourselves as the sacrificial lamb and actually being puffed up about our service, our martyrdom service to others. You can see what Paul is getting at. No matter what you define martyrdom as being or giving up or giving away as being, it's not enough. It falls short of what you ought to be which is to give up things for others in love. So what's the divine arithmetic here? Here's the divine arithmetic. It's kind of surprising. It goes like this. All the gifts, there are 12 of them listed in the New Testament. More could be added. All the gifts minus one thing, love, equals zero. 
All the gifts minus love equals zero. That's how he opens it and how he stresses its importance by way of comparison. Then he goes on to give what you might call the definition of love. He says love is patient. Now, um, as we go through this list, and I'm trying to do it quickly, um, if you don't feel uncomfortable, you probably don't have a soul. Okay? Because when I see that, love is patient, I just want to crawl right under the carpet. Because I'm not. Now, I I know people who are. As a matter of fact, I wish the apple hadn't fallen as far from the tree as it did in my background. My father was the most patient man I've ever seen. Honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm not bloviating here. I can never remember a single time in my life that my father was impatient with me. Some of you knew him well. And you could concur with that. That was my dad, but I am not. I have to work at it. A fourth century theologian named Chrysostom uh, said that he thought this, this patience thing could be described this way. He said, patience is demonstrated by those who are wronged and could easily avenge that wrong, but choose not to. That's an interesting definition of patience. Because when I get impatient, I feel like I've been wronged. Somebody's in my way. Somebody's not doing the right thing. But instead of avenging myself through impatience, I choose patience. Second, love is kind. It's tenderhearted. As a matter of fact, you can remember the words of Paul to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, loving and forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Another definition of love is that love is not envious. You know, you, you might say that there's two kinds of envy, although I'm sure that's uh, a little limited. The one kind of envy covets what the other person has and wishes they had it. That's one kind of envy. The other kind of envy well, you just hold a grudge because they have it. Not because you want it. You just think what they have, they don't deserve. Both of them are a form of envy. Love is not that, says Paul. He goes on to say that love is not boastful. It's not talking about yourself all the time. It's not exaggerating your own importance. You know, we're we're taught to exaggerate or talk about ourselves in job interviews, right? Putting together a resume. Okay, maybe there, but nowhere else. Love is also not rude. This, This rudeness often comes from a sense of entitlement, it seems to me, but love is not rude. Uh, It does not insist on its own way. A question you might ask yourself is whether or not your primary focus is on your rights or your responsibilities. 
That'd be a way to look at this. You don't insist on your own way all the time. You might have rights, but you give them up. Because that's love. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs either. And it's not hot-headed. It doesn't blow up and explode. That, that notion of uh, keeping a record of wrongs, it's really interesting because in the Greek, the word for keeping a record of wrongs is a Greek word that's used for accounting, a ledger, right? You got columns. But instead of thinking about numbers, think about wrongs. You got a ledger of wrongs that somebody did to you. That, that might be good for accounting, no doubt, but it's devastating for relationships. You don't keep such a ledger, says Paul, not if you love. It doesn't delight in evil either, says Paul. It doesn't delight in evil as a spectacle, and it doesn't delight in evil in the other person, the evil that would bring harm to the other person. It doesn't delight in that at all. It actually is a hopeful reality, this thing called love. It wishes the best for all things, including the earth, and all people. And it's hopeful that God's ultimate plan of salvation will work out in this present world. It never gives up hope for that. Love also believes all things. That It sounds like a sort of a silly phrase, hopes all things, believes all things. Does that mean you're silly and and you just believe things that aren't true no of course not that's not what he means he he's suggesting that we hope for the best in others that we hope for the best in our world that we believe in our world and we actually believe in the best of others okay True confession. I'm a critical person. It is not my immediate nature to believe in people. It it, it has saved me a lot of heartache, actually. But when I see this, I have to recoil and back up. I must believe the best in others. Why? Because it's demonstrably true? No. Why? Because God believed in me. Love also endures all things. In other words, it's inexhaustible. It doesn't wear out. Love also will endure forever. All the other gifts that are listed in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, they're all going to go away. Why? Because when we're in the presence of God, we don't need prophecy about God. We're there. When we're in the presence of the Lord, we don't need wisdom about God. Wisdom is present. The whole list of gifts are pointers 
to something, an ultimate reality that's beyond our reach, but pushes us in the right direction. At the end of it all, when love is fully saturated in our lives eternally with God, those things are not necessary. As a matter of fact, when he says love is the greatest, faith, hope, and love, I think the reason he says it's the greatest is because you don't need faith any longer. You don't need hope any longer. You're there, but you still need love because love is God. So that's 1 Corinthians 13. But let's back up and realize that Paul was not saying that the source of love is us. The gifts are from God, and love is from God. So what is the source of love? Not you or me. God himself. When Jesus was on this earth and was asked at one point what the greatest commandment was, um, he repeated the Hebrew scripture called the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and all your strength. And then he put a word in there, and. When Jesus put the word and in there, he was adding to the Shema. He actually wasn't adding a non-scriptural concept. He was bringing two together. Because the Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when Jesus said, and, love your neighbor as yourself, he was bringing in Leviticus 19. And he was wrapping it all up together. And he said, here's the greatest thing. Love God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. You know what, in effect, Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, follow me. Love like I do. Of course, it's not written in that portion of the text. It's written throughout his life. Love God and love your neighbor as I do. Of course, we're kind of wigglers. We're always trying to figure out a way out. So the disciples asked, well, well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he said to love, he said to love everyone. There's another two passages that come in 1 John. Let us love one another because God is love. In that same chapter, John, who was the beloved disciple, the one who seemed to be the closest to Jesus, that seemed to understand the depths of love in a way that some disciples perhaps hadn't gone. He said, this is love, not that we love God, but that God loves us. And he gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins through Jesus Christ. So what's the source of love? The source of love is God. Finally, what, what's the practice of love? Notice that in this passage, chapter 13, 
the description, the definition of love is always kind of a verb. It's kind of a verb form. It's not a noun. It's a do this form. Okay? Love is patient. In other words, do patience. Love is kind. In other words, live kindly. That's the thrust of the passage. So how do we practice love? We practice, we emulate the love of Jesus. And how do we emulate the love of Jesus? We love the stranger. Those that we don't know. Those that we might even be afraid of. We love the stranger. How do we practice the love of God? We love the sinner. You you might say, well, no kidding. No, no, stop a minute. We love the sinner. When Jesus was in the midst of the Pharisees who had surrounded a woman who was caught in adultery, perhaps nothing could demonstrate love more than the way Jesus responded to her. I, I don't mean to be harsh and angry, <laughs> but it seems like to me the Pharisees surrounding the woman often represent the church. Jesus said, love, sinner. He also said, love your enemies. He went so far as to say, bless those who curse you or persecute you. That is love. I, um, I suppose you've heard this statement about how to understand what love is from 1 Corinthians 13. If you haven't, I want you to hear it. The suggestion is, if you really want to understand what love is, you take this passage and every time the word love is there, you substitute the word Jesus. Listen to this. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. Jesus is not self-seeking. Jesus is not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Aren't you grateful? Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus always protects. Jesus always trusts. Jesus always hopes. And Jesus will always persevere.
So what's the admonition in terms of discipleship? Don't try to feel loving. Don't, don't sing a song until you well up with emotion and think that's love. Don't try to manufacture love. Or to put it another way, don't try to think yourself into love. Instead, walk yourself into love. Follow Jesus, the perfect example of love. And then, my friends, in spite of yourself, you will experience love, and so will others. Let's pray. Lord, you've been very gracious to us to demonstrate your love to us in Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for that gift. We pray that we will not hold it to ourselves. We pray that you will not allow the gift to make us boastful or prideful. We pray that you will not allow the gift to make us judgmental and condemning others. We pray that you will not allow the gift of your love to make us seem more righteous than we are. We pray that the gift of your love to us will be experienced as we follow you and your love will radiate to those who are around us. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.